Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. <clears throat> I let uh, Jacob Ellis, one of our elders, pick the background scripture for today. And if you're a longtime cornerstoner, you'll know why. Last Father's Day, I forgot that it was Father's Day. And I was uh, preaching through the book of Ruth, and I wanted to establish that Ruth was a Moabite. So the background scripture kind of sets up the biblical context of what we're doing, and Moab comes from Lot's relationship with his daughters when he's drunk, and that's the passage I picked for last Father's Day morning. <laughs> totally unbeknownst, and I'm listening to Jordan McDevitt read it, this squirming in my chair, go, oh gosh, oh, what did I do? So I just said, Jacob, you pick. I'm, I don't trust myself. Anyways, good morning. <laughs> my name is David Kakish. I am one of the pastors of Cornerstone, and it, it's really hard to say this, but this will be my final sermon. Um, we've had three amazing years together. Three amazing years. Years I will never forget for the rest of my life. And as I reflected on it this week, uh, the Lord reminded me of the first message I preached to y'all when I came up here with Ash in March of 2019 in view of a call. I preached on Romans 1. And I spent a lot of my time on verses 11 and 12 in particular, where Paul says this to strangers in a church in Rome. He's never met them before, and he, he says this, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So what was the spiritual gift that Paul wanted to impart to these Christians in Rome that he's never met? Uh, he doesn't say he doesn't say what it is. Why not? Well, I told you in that sermon over three years ago, and I know you all remember, I told you in that sermon, Paul doesn't say what it is because he doesn't know how to strengthen them yet. He doesn't know what they really need. Paul was willing to become all things to all people, and because of that, he was willing to wait until he arrived to get to know them first, to hear their stories, to hear their strengths and their weaknesses, their wins and their losses. He wanted to get to know them and then determine how best to serve them. So the spiritual gift that Paul wants to impart to the stranger Christians in Rome was this. Paul wanted to give them his whole self. Paul was the gift. Uh, but lest we think that Paul was high on his own stock, I am the gift. I'm giving myself to you and you're all welcome. Uh, read the next line in verse 12. He sees the strengthening and the encouragement as a, a two-way street that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul would give himself. He would empty himself and pour out all of his soul for the Christians in Rome. And in kind and in Christ, they would fill him back up with their love and their faith. It's uh, cyclical and it's beautiful. And I can't think of a more fitting way to describe our time together. Uh, for the last three years, I've tried to give you guys my whole self. May not be what you liked, but it's all that there was. I tried to give you my whole self to strengthen and encourage you in the Lord. And in love, you've done the same for me. And we have been mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Truly, I hope you feel that too. And this week, that really made me thank God for his kindness. He's so kind. 
And since my first words to you came from one of Paul's greetings, I thought it would be fitting for my final words to come from one of Paul's farewells, you know, bookends, symmetry. I like that. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, where Paul gives some final instructions, not to a church of strangers, to a church that he knows well and loves dearly. And these instructions uh, are some that he prays would continually spur them in their knowledge of the grace of our Lord and Savior and spur them to love each other more and more. And Paul gives them instructions for how to conduct themselves in the community of believers, i.e. how to be a good church member, what it looks like to be a part of a church. And we're going to get into Paul's uh, commandments. We are, but you know, I always take the really long route to get there. So just, you know, you can close your Bibles for a second. Let's just talk. I want to be clear about something. Paul's about to give some instructions, but this isn't a list of things to do or things to not do in order to become a Christian. Like, if you do this, you're a Christian. If you don't do this, you're a Christian. Um, There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. We are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to be so clear about that. We are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who loved us with his whole heart, even when we were unlovable who obeyed in all the places that we fail, who gave himself for us, taking the penalty of our sin and dying in our place, who freely offers us forgiveness and life abundantly for what cost for free if we would just repent and believe, who took on all of our curses and freely and lovingly shares with us all of his blessings, who unites us to himself by the power of the Spirit, to the praise and glory of God the Father, and will raise us with him from the grave, who gave us the Holy Spirit, the guarantee, the seal, the promise of our full and final salvation, who comforts us, guides us, teaches us, and leads us and guides us home, and who even right now, Jesus Christ, who lives to plead and make intercession for us, and who calls us his friends. That's what makes someone a Christian, not a to-do list, a list of rules, checkbox. Did these things and I'm good. So these instructions that Paul's about to give us aren't steps that we need to take to become a Christian. That's not what they are. They're a way of life that prove that we already are Christians. This is how Christians live. This is how the fruit of the Holy Spirit comes out of you. It should look like this. Because we're not saved by our obedience, but we are saved for an obedience of faith. We're saved to an obedience that we can obey, and it's our joy to obey. We're, we love and live for God's commandments. Isn't that true? I'm so glad you all answered. I expected dead silence. I'm notorious for trick questions. This wasn't one. It is 100% true. That's why Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. We don't earn his love by commandment keeping. We prove we love him by doing what he says. Uh, We trust him. But here's my real question. What does it look like to keep God's commandments? (laughs) Kind of seriously, do we keep a Bible in our back pocket and whenever we find ourselves in a particular situation, bust it out? flip through, find out what we're supposed to do? Is it a book of rules that we check every time we're in the uh, pickle? I I just cut my grass, my neighbor's grass. He never said thank you. That guy just flipped me off in traffic. Uh, What do I do here? 
Pull out my Bible, flip through Genesis, nothing. Okay, what's the rule here? Exodus, Jesus flipped tables. That's a little different, but do I make a quart of whips? Like, no. We're not constantly flipping through looking for which rule to apply to whatever situation we're in. That will only lead to pharisaical, legalistic, self-righteous, quote-unquote, faith. Uh, and it will end up in despair. It's, it would be terrible. It would be terrible. And one thing I hope you've learned from me uh, over these years is when it comes to living into God's righteous ways, there's almost an infinite amount of lanes on the gospel highway. There's almost an infinite amount of lanes on the gospel highway. We have so much freedom in Christ to give, save, or spend our money. Freedom in Christ to drink or not drink, according to your conscience. Freedom in Christ to take the time to correct someone when they've made sinful actions against you, or to turn the other cheek and bury it in God's mercy. He's forgiven you so much, I'm going to forgive them too. We have so much freedom in Christ, and in most scenarios, keeping God's commandments is more about the why behind our decision over the what that we opted to do. It's really nuanced, it's really tricky, but hear me out. In most scenarios, keeping God's commandments is more about the why behind our decision and over the what we opted to do. So on Mother's Day a few months ago, Kaya, our youngest, who's downstairs, she was four, and she wanted to make Ash a Mother's Day breakfast. She got a plate and brought it to Ash in bed. It was a plastic plate with two Starbursts, three saltine crackers, and a handful of mini marshmallows, okay? The what of that breakfast is abysmal. <laughs> Terrible. Grading it, F. The why behind that is precious in her sight. Yeah? What I'm saying is that God honors the intent of our heart, the why, and in mercy, in love, in grace, because he's receiving us as children, he honors even the attempt at obedience, the what. <laughs> but the why is more important. Um, which is why I'm saying that when it comes to living in God's righteous ways, there's almost an infinite amount of lanes on the gospel highway. There's so much in freedom in Christ to roam and adventure with a heart that's aimed at him, me and you. We're free. But what's funny about that, been in this for quite a few years, most times it's that openness and that freedom of righteous options that stresses Christians out the most. <laughs> they want a, what do I do here? What's the right thing? They, we want this dead, we're, the first struggle you got to get over in Christianity is legalism. Then you get over that and you're stressed that you have options and kind of long for legalism again. Kind of like Israel in Egypt. Oh, it was good. We had it good in Egypt. We had food. We got meals. And I'm not saying this condescendingly. I'm saying I struggle with this myself. I do. Um, we wonder, am I supposed to serve that person even though they said they don't need any help? Am I supposed to serve them anyways? Or is it loving to respect them? They said they don't need any help, even though there's pride in that. They don't want help. Like, which is the right thing to do? Am I supposed to sit on my hands, pray and trust God to move? Or am I supposed to 
use the wisdom that he gave me and solve this problem for myself. Which is it? I can't answer that for you. I don't know. Uh, like I said, there are an infinite amount of scenarios and almost an infinite amount of righteous options. And most times, unless you hear a voice from heaven that perfectly aligns with the voice you hear in the scriptures, um, God gives us freedom to choose our own adventure. Uh, that's a beautiful thing and a stressful thing. So to help navigate us on this road, to help knock out what are definitely not right options, God, through Paul, offers us some guardrails on the gospel highway, um, things to help us discern the non-negotiables. These are things you must do. you got to do these. Um, and in this passage, Paul's drawing a picture of what it looks like to live for Jesus in the context of a local church family, but he won't color it in. He's leaving it to us to color it in however we want, green or yellow or red. He's giving us freedom to color it in. What I'm saying is Paul is teaching us the scales of a gospel-centered church. C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Over and over, he's teaching us the scales. Not for us to play scales until Jesus returns. No one wants to listen to scales. It's the most boring session of when your kids are learning to play an instrument. You're like, great, good job. Uh, it's not a song. He's not teaching us the scales, so we'll just play them over and over again. He's teaching us the scales so that when the fundamentals of the faith sink in, deep into our souls, playing becomes second nature. We can play by feel. We can improvise. You just kind of, you know. The scales are just a means to an end. Um, and in a sense, there's infinite freedom to play whatever solo you want over the melody as long as you stay in the right key. And that's what Paul's doing. He's teaching us the scales so that no matter what genre of life comes on the radio or what situation comes across our path, we'll know how to transpose and improvise without creating dissonance from the overarching melody. Does that make sense? And do you know what that overarching melody, the title of that gospel song, do you know what it is? Jesus saves, and better is one day in his court than a thousand elsewhere. That's the overarching melody. You can, align with God's scripture, play whatever you, notes you want as long as you stay in that key. Jesus saves, and better is one day in his court than a thousand elsewhere. Improvise, play, but you gotta learn the scales first. And in our passage this morning, Paul is teaching us scales. What a long intro, y'all are patient, on how to conduct ourselves in the community of faith. And our outline looks like this, two points. First, he's gonna talk about the relationship between elders and members. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. Then in point two, how members should relate to one another, members and members, uh, verses 14 and 15. I'm gonna read this passage quickly. We're going to fly over it quickly, point by point. But if you have your Bible, open up with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. And let's hear the word of the Lord together. If you don't have a Bible, shame on you. Just kidding. Uh, it's on the screen behind me. Paul writes this. We ask you, brothers, brothers and sisters, uh, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Point one, 
elders and members. We're going to begin with verses 12 through 13. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time here to look at how Paul instructs members to have relationships. How, what should the relationship look like between members and the elders, pastors, same word. What's happening in these verses, uh, if you look closely at them, Paul's going to give us three functions three things that elders, pastors do. This list is not exhaustive. They do more than this. Uh, this list is the most exhausting part of what they do, right? And the first being is that they labor among you. They labor among you. They work. They strive. They struggle on behalf of the congregation. And in that work, they grow weary. Uh, one commentator says that the phrase, they labor among you, is meant to conjure up this picture of rippling muscles and dripping sweat. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that this is an accurate depiction of our elders, Jay, Jacob, and Jordan. Uh, they toil, they strive, and struggle on your behalf, and sometimes grow weary in the doing. And Sunday may be the highlight and most visible part of what they do, but I promise you it's the least of their work. Uh, these guys are on the front line of the spiritual war that is raging all around us. And if I have one fault to find in them, it's that they're constantly trampling over each other to be the first to dive in front of the fiery arrows that Satan has aimed at our church. They are godly men who labor among you, first function. Number two, Paul says that they are over you in the Lord. And a cultural milieu that hates authority, uh, I think some will balk at this phrase. They're over me. <laughs> and to those who would balk at this phrase, who get sin bumps at the words authority and submission, uh, let me say this. Suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> this is the word of God, not a blog post that's asking you for your thoughts in the comment section, you know? There are places we get to disagree. The Bible's not one of them. Um, and I'm not saying that their authority and submission, it, it can get warped. It can get deficient. They are over you in the Lord, but the assumption in that is the Lord is over them. And they will have to give an account for it. And this is just what it says. I'm just reading it. Um, God has organized his people in wisdom, in love, more wisdom and love than we have, that some are appointed to lead and guide his church, and the rest are called to follow and trust. And uh, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian who answers to no one. If there is not a pastor elder who is over you in the Lord, it's because you have placed yourself over the word of the Lord, and you are in the wrong. That said, they're over you in the Lord. Uh, the picture of Christian leadership is not one of an iron fist. Never. Jesus was so clear that true leadership in his kingdom is marked by service. It's marked by humility. It's marked by patience. It's marked by love. And it's marked by truth. Uh, and if you know our elders, you'll know them to be nothing less than that. So the point of this second function is they are over you in the Lord and the Lord is over them, which means that they will have to give an account to God for how they shepherded and cared for your soul. And after 17 years, I can tell you that is not a comfortable pillow to sleep on. It's not like, oh, I'm done. It's like, God, did I do right? <laughs> it's, it's not fun. They're over you in the Lord. And lastly, they admonish you in the faith. God gave uh, the church elders to shepherd and care for the flock. 
And one of the ways they do that is by teaching and correcting members when they start ripping solos in the wrong key. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Stop. And the word admonish always, almost always, carries with it an ethical component. It's talking about ethics, right and wrong. So it's talking about warning and correcting and disciplining sin and folly in the context of the church. The elder's job is to point out and pick up the dog poop on the white snow of God's grace. You remember that for a few weeks? I mentioned dog poop. In short, pastors, elders are pooper scoopers. <laughs> now, they're called to do that admonishment in love and in gentleness. And if they're not doing it like that, then they have sinned. And we'll have to account to God for that. That said, the last four or five years in particular, I, I, there's been a cultural shift a little bit, and I'm not getting into the culture, but just because a person was, who was admonished feels like it wasn't gentle and loving, it doesn't mean it wasn't. Do you know what I mean? Um, truth is, no one likes being corrected. No one likes being called out, but in this new world order, you're either an oppressor or a victim, you know? There's no in-between. There's no two sides to the story, and, and it's getting hard, and there are many who will see anything other than fully agreeing with their narrative as doing violence against them. If you don't see it exactly how I'm saying it, uh, which leads us back to why the work of pastoring and eldering is toiling, working, tired, ripping muscles, dripping sweat, and growing weary. It, it's hard. Uh, I've seen our elders admonish with excellence. As much as it depends on them, I've seen them uh, strive for peace with gentleness and love. And in the very, 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 very few occasions where they've ever deviated from that, I've seen them quickly sprint to repent and ask for forgiveness. I'm so thankful for the elders that God has placed at Cornerstone Church. And in some, I think they check all three of these boxes. The elders labor among you. They're over you in the Lord. They've been commissioned by God to admonish you for God's glory and your good. That's what they do. Uh, but what attitude should church members have towards their elders? Thankfully, Paul tells us two things. Uh, number one, respect them. Number two, esteem them. I love that he says very highly for the work that they do in the Lord. Respect them. Recognize their efforts. Uh, honor them for their labors. Trust them and follow their leadership. The word for respect can mean take an interest in them. Care for them. Um, so ask them how they're doing. Ask them how you can serve them or their families. Ask them how you can be praying for them. It's an interesting world we could live in, but the possibilities of what that looks like are endless, as long as the why is coming from a place of respect, yeah? That's the first thing he commands. Second thing is esteem them very highly in love for the work that they do. In their love for the Lord and for you, um, our elders have taken up an extremely heavy, extremely hard, and often extremely thankless load on their shoulders. They're held to a higher standard for the pulpits they preach from the sermon and the pulpits they preach from their lives. And uh, they will have to give an account to God for each of your souls. I keep repeating that because that is a weight that is heavy. And to top it all off, these guys, Jacob, Jay, and Jordan, 
These guys do it for free. <laughs> it's my job. I've been paid to do it. And we all know I wasn't in the ministry. I did it in the monastery, right? Like it was all about the Benjamins for me. I've been making it rain. <laughs> Not them. This isn't their job. It's their joy. Um, and Paul's making the point that it's the member's job to overwhelm them with appreciation and love. Don't let this be a thankless assignment. Don't make them groan, make them sing. Uh, and that's how the members are supposed to act towards their pastors and elders. And by God's grace, it's my joy to say that's exactly how our church has acted towards all of us. Y'all make us sing, and thank you for that. Here's the coolest part. I'm trying to rush myself so I don't cry. Uh, the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. That's not an extra command. That's the result of living into the previous commands. When both the elders and members are playing the right gospel notes, it creates this beautiful harmony. This beautiful harmony. The combination of these two parts enable both the elders and the members to live in peace with one another, where they're both, they're mutually encouraged, they're mutually served, they're mutually blessed. It's a joy for the elders to serve. It's a joy for the members to submit because there's so much trust and love and the sound of this gospel song will be twice as loud to the world out there that's stuck listening to static. It will be a sweet melody in their ears. That's point one. These are Paul's instructions for how the church members are to relate to the elders and what the elders are doing. Uh, is that it? Pastors? No. There's more. You guys have a responsibility for one another. Each part of the body has a responsibility to and for the other, and that's what Paul's going to get into in verses 14 and 15, how members are related to one another. I'll read them real quick. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. There are four commandments just in verse 14. See them? Admonish the idle. Two, encourage the faint-hearted. Three, help the weak. Four, be patient with them all. We're going to hit them rapid fire. Admonish the idle. In Paul's day, and this never, ever, ever happens today, there were free letters in the church. <laughs> who were leeching off the generosity and kindness of God's people, right? And the church, because they were maybe living into a rules-based, pharisaical, legalistic type knee-jerk reactions to situations across their path, know that legalism cuts both ways. It's not just thou shall not, fundamental, it's also thou shall. This constant pressure to perform. They'd see these free letters, See the opportunity to show God's kindness and mercy to those who don't deserve it. That sounds righteous, but in this instance, it wasn't. It wasn't. Paul's telling them to stop it. You're not loving the freeloader. You're enabling them, is what he's trying to say. Because here's the reality. If you are unwilling to work, notice I'm not saying if you're unable to work. That's a different equation entirely. Cats and dogs. If you are unwilling to work, earlier in this book, Paul says, then you shouldn't get to eat. Saying yes to them is inevitably saying no to someone else. You can help less people who may actually need it. Think about it like this. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so with these freeloaders, 
if they're constantly receiving, <laughs> they're never giving. And so that's why in this book, Paul says, they should work and earn so that they can give. So by giving to the freeloaders constantly, you're depriving them of the opportunity to experience the blessing Jesus talks about. They can never give. They can never be generous. They can never share in God's mercy and show it to others. They're only taking, taking, taking. And I know this might sound heartless and callous. I'll give you uh, an example of this. I think I've told you all this before. Uh, in the South, I served at a church with multiple campuses, but one campus was in a really rough uh, neighborhood, really rough area. And daily we had three to five people walk into the office to ask for money. Money for bus fare, money for a power bill, money for electricity bill, money for gas, groceries, a million different things, beanie baby collection, I don't know. Um, and if we gave it to them, which we did for a stint, do you know why? Uh, because it's really easy to be generous with other people's money. <laughs> Y'all gave, I got this benevolence fund, sure, you can have some, you, everyone gets a car. It's really easy for churches to be generous with other people's money. So when we did give, um, not only did they come back more often, but they would tell other people, hey, you want a free gas card? You want a free go? You should come with us to this church. They just hand it out. And uh, that wasn't helping anyone. It was only enabling the situation. So I implemented a policy. If you wanted any sort of financial assistance, you had to sit down with one of our elders or deacons for two hours and draw up a budget. And in that process, we would figure out why you don't have money for those things. And what could we do differently where this wouldn't be a repeating situation? You don't have money for your water bill this month and next month. We're doing this till Jesus comes back. What could we do differently? Could you spend less? Could you work more? Could you? And only then can we figure out how the church can help you and love you. And sometimes that's uh, admonishment. You got to go to work, bro. But sometimes it's, man, you're doing everything you can. You're situated. Let us help you here. Let's use Connections to the Church to find you a better job. Let's do this and whatever. And that was the plan. Uh, do you know what happened? 99% of people never showed up again <laughs> because it was really inconvenient. They just took us off the list of a place to get a free handout. There's other churches that are bragging about their generosity and kindness. We'll go there. That's fine. 99% of people never came back. The 1% who did, um, they felt loved. They felt cared for. They felt invested in. They got to see and hear the gospel in action. Uh, and through care and sometimes admonishment, they left with dignity. Anyways, admonish the idol. One, we won't spend that much time on each of these. Uh, second, encourage the faint-hearted. Unless you read King James Version or love Shakespeare, no one says faint-hearted. So uh, who are the faint-hearted? They're believers who have weary souls particularly those who are grieving, those who are feeling downtrodden. For what reason? Millions, because of persecution in their life, hardships they're experiencing, loss of a job, loss of family or friends. Um, we're called to encourage the faint-hearted, the soul-weary. And remember, these aren't God's commandments just to the elders. They're God's commandments to you all, the members, on what you are supposed to be and do for one another. You're called to encourage the faint-hearted. So it is not a sin for one of you to text one of the elders and say, you know, such and such is going through a really hard time. It'd be good if you checked up on him. That's not a sin. It is a sin for you to see a situation, know the good that you can do, and then pawn it off on someone else feeling like, I did my job today. <laughs> You're sitting at a restaurant with a nice beach view. You see someone drowning. Go, someone's drowning. Someone should help them. I'm such a good person. 
That's spiritual slacktivism, and James calls it a sin. <laughs> if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sinned. That's on you. So we can't just pawn it off. Uh, we need to seek ways to encourage the weary. How do we do that? Through prayer, through meals, through kindness, through listening, through loving, through generosity, through a hug, through service. It can be anything you want it to be. Paul doesn't specify what it has to look like because you can color in this picture however you want, however you feel led. You can rock out whatever solo you want over the faint-hearted as long as you do it in the key of encouragement. That's the why that you would do it. So encourage the faint-hearted. Third, God commands you to help the weak. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, the weak, particularly because he's writing to a church, their weakness is there are people in the church who are struggling with sexual sin. They're struggling to stay chaste, to stay pure. That was their particular weakness, and so that's what he's referring to there. But more broadly speaking, it's anyone who is trying to honor the Lord with their life, yet finds themselves constantly praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I want to give you everything, but I keep doing the things I hate to do, and I can't stop. I need you, God. That's what the weak are. They're hanging on by a thread, trying to honor God with the last bits of themselves, but keep falling into this cycle. So whether it's a husband who's trying to love a difficult wife like Christ loved the church, or a wife trying to respect a husband who's not worthy of respect, or children trying to honor parents that really aren't worthy of honor, or someone who's actively fighting against some sort of addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography or food or whatever, or it's someone who's struggling not to think about, entertain, or act on sexual desires that are outside the picture of what God says is safe ground, a husband and wife in forever union under Jesus. Uh, or it's someone weakness that they have bouts of anxiety and depression or anger, whatever that weakness is. The command is the same. Help the weak. Help them. Not judge them. Reach out to the spiritually exhausted and help pull them back up on their feet. That is the command for us. Offer them hope and encouragement. Find ways to lift their weary arms when they don't have the strength to pick them up themselves. Be a source of gospel accountability. That's a way to love and help the weak. Be Jesus to them, neither excusing the sin or condemning the sinner. Help the weak. Those are the four commands, and well, with three, but here comes the fourth. If you've ever tried to be this and do this for someone, it's hard. All of these are, are hard situations. Admonishing the idle and uh, encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak. The situation and the person can be really draining. And the person may even bite the hand that's feeding them. I've had people resent me and yell at me and cuss me out for doing exactly what they asked me to do in their moments of weakness. And you try to be that for them and they hate you for it. And the truth is these situations can constantly feel like one step forward, two steps back, and you feel like you're listening to the same song stuck on repeat, and it's not pleasant, and Paul knows that. He knows it's going to be hard. He knows you're going to get sick of that song. And so he ends this section with this command, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak. Be patient with them all. And that is really hard, y'all. 
If you're just focusing on the what of that command, that command is more costly than a tank of gas right now, you know? The what of that command is hard, so we need to focus on the why of that command. That's the secret sauce in doing it. And this is how we do that. Think of your own struggles. Think of all the places where you find yourself repeatedly going to God, asking for mercy and forgiveness. How has God treated you? Does he say, are you serious? You again? Didn't I just forgive your lust two days ago? And a week before that? You idiot. Get your act together, scumbag. We're done here. The question I'm asking you is, how has God treated you in your evergreen struggles? I know the answer. I can tell you right now. He's done so patiently. Word uh, patience can be translated long-suffering. It's a Shakespearean word, King James Version word, but I love it because he suffers us long. <laughs> he suffers us long. Me in particular, he has suffered me very long. And no matter how many times, I go to him with patience and gentleness and love dripping from each word coming out of his mouth. You know what he says? Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So do your best impression of that. Good luck. Be patient. Be long-suffering. Why? Because God in Christ has been so patient and long-suffering to us. Amen? So then Paul ends this portion on community care with this one uh, commandment. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. What he means is this. Even in the church, you will inevitably be sinned against. That's what that's talking about. Why would evil against evil? We're all Christians here. Our roses, uh, our roses smells like poop, and our poop smells like roses. Both of those are probably true. In, even in the church, you will inevitably sin against others and be sinned against, but when you do, don't look for ways to get even. Don't keep record of wrongdoing. If you're going to keep score, keep score of someone's wins rather than memorializing and statuing their losses for all eternity. That one time, and she said, my casserole wasn't good, and we're never going to be friends again. Uh, don't do that. Outdo one another in showing kindness. Outdo one another in generosity. Do one another in giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Love hopes all things, not jumps to worst case conclusions and text me back right away. And then to me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Do what Eugene Peterson said, uh, says about this. Look for the best in each other and always do your best to bring that out of them. I love that. I've always found uh, so much encouragement in the fact that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, saints that have gone before us, who are watching us from heaven, cheering us on in our fumbling, bumbling faith journeys. I wouldn't cheer me on, they cheer us on. That is so encouraging. But I've always found twice as much encouragement when the folks who are cheering me on are on the pews beside me. <laughs> I can see them. I can hear them. I can see their faces and feel their hugs, even in my weakness, even in my sin. It's more encouraging. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And if you suffer evil for doing those righteous deeds, Paul tells us what to do with that too in Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in the next few verses, Paul's going to offer some really beautiful gems. Rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. I really want to unpack those, but we won't because I think that's enough for today. <laughs> Y'all are tired of me. I get it. Um, so now for my final words to you. I've never been one who's struggled to express himself with words. I like words. They're fun. But thinking about what I wanted to say here has been really difficult for me, not because I can't find the words, because the f- words don't feel enough. You know what I mean? There's inflation in, in language, too. I'm like, what if I say that? So forgive me if this sounds trite, but the two phrases I wrote that I wanted to express to you are these. Thank you. And I love you. Oh. I once read about a pastor at his retirement party, and he looks at his wife and says this in front of everyone. He said, uh, remember when we were young? We said that we didn't want to clutter our lives with things. We wanted to clutter our lives with people. And then he said, I don't think we understood how rich that would make us. And Ash and me and our whole family, we've cluttered our life with people. And not just any people, but the best sort of people. Cornerstoners. (laughs) You cornerstoners. Cornerstonians, that sounds right. We've cluttered our life with the best sort of people, you all. And as a result, our lives are richer than all the treasures on earth combined. God brought us here to restore our hope in the local church. Thank you. And to make us whole again, and he's done that. He led us to green pastures and still waters. And he has restored our souls. Um, Our God has used this small church in a town of 2,000 people to help lead us uh, through the valley of the shadow of death, to lavish us with a feast at his table, and to fill our cups overflowing. And in his everlasting kindness, God has solved mountain-sized problems in my heart through a mustard seed-sized solution. You raggedy saints. (laughs) So thank you, and I hope you know how much we truly love you. With that, I want to leave you uh, with Paul's benediction, his good words over a church that he loves dearly. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. That's my prayer for you all. I love you guys.